Hello there, welcome back to the Greenfluence and Recalibrate podcast mini-series. This episode we've got from Recalibrate, the amazing Pavina from Greenfluence. We're joined with this, our co-founder, Angela, our marketing officer, and myself, Shri, the podcast lead. We're also keen for you to tune in to our second episode on last year's COP27. We chat about the loss and damage fund mitigation, diversity, and adaptation while touching on financial trends. Get ready for episode two. Special podcast series. Now, the focus of this series has been on the global south, but now we want to look at COP27 and how that links to the global south and how that helps developing nations and how that will ultimately shape what's going to happen in the next few years. It's been heaps of heaps of discussions. We're going to break it down into 40 minutes. So let's go. Um, before we start, I wanted to introduce three very key members of the team who will be joining me in the discussion. We have Angela, we have Shri, and we have Pavina, and myself, of course. Do you guys want to give a quick rundown as to what each of you are going to be talking about? Um, I'll start with Angela. Hey, guys. My name is Angela. As you have heard me from previous episodes, co-hosting with Shri. I'm the marketing officer for Greenfluence, so it's really good to be here and a great to catch up with everyone on the podcast app. Cool. And Angela, what topic are you talking about? in this episode? I will be talking about adaptation and for young people as well, participating in the COP27. Keen to hear that. What about you, Shri? I'll be talking a bit about um, COP27 and then leading on to what was um, the main theme of COP27, which was the loss and damage concept and the fund that uh, was established. Very nice. Keen to hear about it. And on to you, Pavina. Thanks so much, Viz. Um, hey, everyone. I'm the founder of the Recalibrate podcast. So very excited to be here with the Greenfluence team and running this partnership series. I will be talking about mobilizing climate finance, particularly for emerging markets in the global south. So a bit of overlap with loss and damage, but very excited to hear um, yeah, what comes through from this discussion. Cool. Yeah. And hi, everyone. I'm Viz, the co-founder of Greenfluence. Um, I'll be talking more about mitigation. So what um, various countries have agreed upon or haven't agreed upon in terms of emission targets, talking about the 1.5 degree Paris target and how this links to the whole COP27. Um, and of course, our focus is on the global south. So keen to keen to discuss about how this not only impacts the high emitting countries, but also those who don't have their voices heard. So yeah, looking forward to this. So sit back and relax. And yeah, I'll pass it to Pavina, who will kick off with the question. Great. So we'll start off with um, loss and damage and what it's all about. It's been a major hype at COP27. We've all known, well known that progress on historic loss and damage fund has been uh, a key focus since negotiations began at COP27. However, it's been quite disappointing that there's been limited progress made on climate ambitions, particularly towards uh, taking the world towards a 1.5 degree world. And this COP particularly has highlighted the needs for developing nations to achieve climate-related goals. So I've got Shri here, who's been doing a lot of research on into the background and the setup of the loss and damage fund. So I think we'll start by taking a very high-level view. What is the definition of loss and damage, Shri? Can you explain to us? 
So loss and damage refers to the negative consequences that arise from these unavoidable risks of climate change. And this is, um, you know, this expands beyond just rising sea levels and pollution and um, different things that affect um, many different countries all over the world. But it's also how the economies are affected and um, what's, what sort of um, loss losses these countries face um, and things that happen due to um, climate change like bushfires, things that we've suffered as a nation in Australia and um, the extinction of biodiversity, um, you know, certain species um, in our ecosystem as well. Very interesting, Shree. So it sounds like this fund is very crucial, particularly for the global south to fight climate change. What do you think are the critical factors for the efficient operation of this fund? For example, how are they planning on allocating how much of the funds goes towards which country? I think the main thing that they have come up with is focus on loss and damage. They have yet to come up with a plan to um, cater towards that. And um, it's going to be interesting how they the countries in G20 um, go forward with this plan as well. But what this year at COP um, 27 showed is that there was a more focus on loss and damage and they're really trying to push this concept um, you know, for future meetings. So uh, before I go into that um, a bit deeply, I just want to reflect on what happened last year at COP26. There were nine requirements for um, a more orderly transition and there was this huge focus on um, settling emission targets, trying to limit this temperature down to 1.5 degrees um, according to that Paris Agreement and this adaptation fund was also um, created to support developing countries and we're going to look at that before we look at um, you know the future of loss and damage fund um, and there was there's a more focus on that but now you know um, we've We've, we're focusing more on how to actually give back to these disadvantaged nations um, because this adaptation fund and the many other climate funds that have been established, um, including the Green Climate Fund, um, hasn't really filled, the, filled this gap in inequity. So currently, um, the adaptation and mitigation finance flow in in 2020 fell at least down to 17 US billion, um, short of the 100 billion pledge to developing countries, and the and the same was um, to the International Adaptation Fund, which fell short. Um, and they needed at least well over 300 billion um, by you know per year by 2030. So there are a lot of these promises being made, but um, more action needs to be taken to to achieve these goals. Um, so I think that is the question: is you know what are these 
these countries going to be doing? Is it the polluters that are going to be contributing mostly into this fund? And what are the leaders in G20 going to be doing to tackle all of this? Um, going on to G20, um, G20, you know, accounts for, you know, all these list of countries that account for 75% of emissions produced globally. And together, these um, G20 members present more than 80% of the world's GDP as well. So these countries include Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, France, Germany, India, Indonesia, Italy, Japan, Mexico, Republic of Korea, Republic of South Africa, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, UK and the USA and um, the EU. And you know, there were three main themes that were planned to be covered, including the global health architecture, digital transformation, sustainable energy transition as well. Um, but I think what is going to be the main change that is needed is for countries that are really emitting the most to take, you know, to take action. So, for example, Indonesia, who is the... Uh, it is one of the world's largest consumer of coal and fifth world's fifth largest greenhouse emitter. Um, they want to achieve their carbon neut neutrality by 2060, and that's their goal. Um, but um, you know, the share of the you know renewables in their in their primary energy mix, you know, dramatically hasn't really changed much. So if you look at 2021 as opposed to 2022, which um, I'll put um, climate transparency report uh, for 2022 link in the show notes. So you'll have a look at that. But 2021, if you look at their results there, um, they they wanted to de decrease, um, you know, emissions, um, you know, drastically, but they haven't really you know they they haven't really done much and the same thing in 2022 they they wanted to reduce emissions but they really didn't do anything either so at cop 26 indonesia signed a voluntary pledge on phasing out coal to be operationalized in two phases so retiring some coal plants by 2031 with um with further retirements between 20 2036 and to 2040. And then final coal, coal plant power plants retirement should take place between 2051 to 2060. There is this whole thing about um, pledging to phase out coal, but there was no, there hasn't been any clear roadmap. Um, so and and on top of this, the 2021 to 2030 National Electricity Plan is still maintained um, as in Indonesia's reliance on coal power. So this uh, this ban on um, coal export has actually been lifted. So you know we we really need to see more change coming from Indonesia. You know, that's a really good summary. I got a really interesting, or I think it's kind of interesting as to like what happens with Indonesia because they are a huge emitter, but they're also a developing nation. So like it's really interesting to see how they fall in that loss and damage fund. 
because they are quite susceptible to natural disasters. You know, like they have a few islands, things like that, but they're also a huge emitter and they're still reliant on fossil fuels. So I think like it'll be really keen to see like what, like are there going to be more updates or are there going to be specific needs or clauses? And I think like that's where that wording will be like so important with these negotiations because these Mm. things take a while to happen. So. 100%. And that loss and damage concept of, or the emitters have to pay, what about this grey area where the emitters are developing countries that, you know, they're emitting, but they also cannot afford to resolve the the current climate crisis that they're facing? Very interesting, Tree. I just wanted to add to what Viz already pointed out, which is that, Um, It'll be interesting to see what kind of implementation roadmap comes out of Indonesia, particularly since the G20 that just happened in Bali that you talked about, where obviously there was a big announcement that um, the US and its allies, Japan and the EU would mobilize uh, $20 billion of financing to help Indonesia transition from being coal reliant to renewables. And some of the data that I've seen uh, last year points to the fact that clean energy financing and energy transition financing is not reaching the developing world fast enough. I think it was 8% last year. So I'll be talking about that in the financing section towards the end. But um, thank you. The other point I'd like to make um, is that I think you bring up a really good point that there's been so much focus on financing for mitigation and not enough focus on adaptation. So what we'll do now is maybe we'll pass it on to um, Viz and Angela just to talk a bit more about what's happening in the climate mitigation world and what are the different uh, commitments that have come out of COP27. Yeah, so no, thanks, Pavina. And I think this idea of mitigation, it really ties in well to Shri's previous point because you've got the loss and damage fund, which is which is sort of separating countries into those in need and those who are heavy emitters. And then you've got some overlap. But the mitigation is all about, you know, like how do we reduce the current emission trajectory kind of thing? Um, because there was a, actually a report that came out by the UN Environmental Programme, which suggests that we are currently on the rate to 2.7 degrees Celsius warning, uh, warming by 2100. And of course, we still need to make that that, that 1.5 degree target. So there's obviously like going to be a huge gap there. Um, and, and unfortunately, I think it's been quite underwhelming, frankly, the amount of um, I guess, action taken on this sort of like stance. I kind of do understand why it's such a big issue because you've got quite a few nations in the EU who are, you know, doing quite a lot in solar, um, doing quite a lot in wind, and they have the technology and and they have startup facilities and they have scale-ups. But then you've also got quite a few countries in the middle, like say Australia, like Canada, who are sort of slowly making these pledges. But say for Australia, we're quite reliant on fossil fuels. So is it going to be in our best interest economically? That's that's up for debate. And then you've got all these various developing nations who unfortunately still rely on fossil fuels. Um, think about like China and India, who may still have a high population growth. And for them, it's not a matter about like 
phasing out fossil fuels, they sort of have to slowly phase down. And then you've got this other way to look at things like if it's not fossil fuels like coal, um, would gas be a transitional fuel, things like that. And I think this like really leads on to the next point about the wording in in COP27 and why that's so important. So in, in COP26, um, I think you guys may have seen there was a focus on um, phasing down the use of coal. And they only mentioned coal. They didn't mention all fossil fuels um, because I think there was some sort of issues um, from some countries. I think might have been India who wanted to stay away from that, given um, that their emissions are going to peak by maybe a certain time before they decrease. Um, but and and unfortunately, this year, um, many people would have hoped that would be a phase out instead of a phase down. So saying, no, we're not going to use fossil fuels in our trajectory. Um, but unfortunately, I think they use the term called low emissions energy. And I think the problem with that is that it leaves the door open for the use of gas and things like that, which are harmful, but still have um, a lot more, a lot more lower emissions. I think the one positive thing is that that 1.5 degree target is still is still there. It's still we haven't given up on it, um, which I think is really good. Um, and I think from a domestic point of view, from an Asia Pacific point of view, I think Australia, with our new Labor government setting the target of of 43 percent, um, has has been like a huge improvement. But I think the key thing here is that we want to be sort of at the forefront of climate debate, but I mean, when I host COP31, that's going to be in four years, but we need to actually improve our reductions target to be considered seriously around the world. Um, you have countries like the US with the Inflation Reduction Act, the record-breaking um, climate investment. And I think that's still like quite a long way for us to go on that front. Um, and, I, and, and I think like that's going to be important because we're the gateway to the Asia Pacific. And I think what we do will influence other nations. Um, so I, I think that, you know, is also um, quite critical. Yeah. And I think like the other thing as well, which Pavina, you will also mention is that whole concept of article six and um, how countries are going to mitigate emissions. Are they going to use um, proper technology? Are they going to invest in this renewable energy or are they going to use like more carbon market uh, mechanisms uh, and things like that. Um, so definitely like, yeah, a lot to look to. Um, I think Shri covered the previous section really well. There definitely can be um, a lot more in terms of mitigating carbon emissions. Like I think if I look at my glass half full, at least 1.5 degrees, we haven't given up on that. Um, but pledges have only increased like 7%. And, and now it's really, it's really time for action. Um, another good thing was in Brazil, I think the new president, um, I think the newly newly elected president actually actually mentioned he will spare no efforts to have zero deforestation and degradation of our biomes by 2030. So I think that's a huge sign. Um, I think the efforts of the US, the UK has been positive, but then again, they're just pledges and we need to see what actually happens. Um, but yeah, I think I think like not the best outlook in terms of mitigation. It's definitely interesting how you and Shri as well and Savina have been able to compare the different countries on their own progress in fighting climate change. And it it is really good to see that Australia has improved its emission reduction targets, as you mentioned, um, but the only way to go is up and hopefully that can improve with time. So thank you so much for that, Piss. Um Mitigation and loss and uh, damage fund just just uh, blow from one another. And so because of that, I think it's so important to talk about both of them 
together because uh, without the other, we can't really see the future of that fund um, being efficiently managed um, to, to help mitigate climate risk. Moving on to adaptation with Angela, we'll be covering, um, you know, things about gender inequality, um, diversity and inclusion uh, for climate risk, climate change and uh, adapting to solutions. So for our first question, as young people, why do you think it's important for gender diversity to be observed across all large conferences such as COP. Yeah, so uh, thanks, Shree, for introducing the topic. Um, as we know, as we progress into a more modern era where we start to recognise gender equality and uh, the recognition of young people, it is so, so important for this year's COP event to recognise that nowadays, especially with more students and more young people will be becoming more aware of climate change and what's out there. So I just wanted to start off with an article that I read from the World Food Program. Uh, Jenny Wilson, who was present, um, a journalist present at the COP27 event, she stated that there were approximately 110 heads of states that attended this year's climate conference. Unfortunately, seven of them were women. Now, think about it. Seven out of 110, that is not the ratio that we can accept as a generation aiming for gender equality. And to have um, an, an, an a new generation that is wanting to have more women in positions of leadership as well. So what can I say is that it is so important to recognize that we are going through this diversity um, era um, now and just to have large conferences where it's so influential in addressing climate change that we need to have this uh, new concept coming in and need to reject the old way of things and yeah, like I said from earlier, we need to have more women in this type of like leadership and to recognise the SDG uh, goal of gender equality that we aim to achieve by 2030. This is what we need to get done. And, yeah, just to have this level of recognition for women um, is so important. 100%. I think yeah. that's so important for us to go forward as mm -hmm. a society, also as as a world, like as you know, as people globally, um, you know, in midst of globalization, in midst of post-COVID, in midst of everything that's happening right now, I think that should be the centre of um, changing our direction towards more inclusive conversations around mm -hmm. climate change and solutions, and adapting to a better future. And exactly, and considering that at the moment, unfortunately, gender equality is not majorly recognised in vulnerable countries, including some countries in the global south, this is a very important conversation to have and one that should definitely be recognised and acknowledged in this year's COP, which I think was a little um, slightly mentioned. However, as stated again, um, this needs to be another priority for future uh, climate change conferences, whether it's COP or just another um smaller, large conference happening in the world. 100%. I think, again, um, such a great point you've made there, Angela. I think it's not just about what are we doing um, to make our voices collectively um, more inclusive, but also looking at 
the inequity that women face and, you know, other disadvantaged people across the world face when it comes to just their position in in that nation, their status to to actually um, have a voice, to have, you know, political say, to have a vote and have a change, have a chance to to influence those decisions that really affect them. Yeah, 100%. And I think this kind of relates back to um, what the president of Egypt, I hope I'm going to pronounce his name correctly, it's Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. He stated in the beginning of COP27, I quote, I deeply believe that COP27 is an, is an opportunity to showcase unity against an existential threat that we can only overcome through concerted action and effective implementation, end quote. The reason why this quote is so important to me personally as I was following the COP27 is that the president acknowledged, acknowledged in his statement that all groups, regardless of age or gender, they need to come together to engage and progress into action when it comes to fighting sustainability issues such as climate change and global warming and social impact. Um, and this kind of relates to the next topic of young people, which I want to talk about because it was stated in previous COP um events that not many young people have been able to take an opportunity to share their voice and this was raised a lot in this year's um, uh, climate change conference so that's one thing I was really happy to see. Just another example that I want to talk about Shree is and I hope and I think everyone else everyone in the group knows who I'm talking about will be Greta Thunberg. Uh, She is a teenage a fantastic teenage activist from Sweden who has inspired many young people across the globe to speak out and and act against climate change. One of the ways she did this was, um, I forgot what you call it, where you're protesting in front of the school and just in, like um, sharing her voice in the larger people uh, in, in higher positions to also fight against climate change. So even though the movement that Greta has created has been nothing short of amazing, um, the inclusivity of marginalised groups in society is still an issue. This was evident in COP27 and is evident in many individual nations, where the representation in the government and so on. Fortunately, however, progress has been made at this year's COP event, as I mentioned, that more young people are becoming more recognised. And uh, it was Simon Thiel, I'm hoping I pronounced the name correctly, is the UN's climate change body, who thanked the youth advocates for moving climate change to the front of the global agenda. So again, acknowledging the young people um, heading into the space and it's just a fantastic thing to see in uh, acknowledging diversity. 100%. Um, and, and just leading on to that, um, there was some progress being made um, and, you know, um, it, it is, you know, important for youth activists to become more involved in policy make in, in the policy making process process um, and in this COP27 um, there was a first ever children and youth yeah. p- pavilion do you want to explain what that was yeah sure so the uh, COP27 event actually opened its first ever children and youth pavilion uh, which was made by young people for young people so same generation same audience uh, this this is actually the first of many bits of action that can help the youth share their voice um, not only just in the COP27 event, but also just for other future climate conferences that may happen. Uh, The aim of it is obviously to host events and working groups and have networking opportunities and policy briefings uh, between uh, that particular age group. Um, 
Of course, this will contribute to the empowerment of voices for children and youth networks that are becoming more adapt to the global climate conversation. And I think this is just a powerful, massive step up in what the world that we're living in today. What do you think, Shree? I think it's so important that um, that took place in COP27 and that it continues to do so in the future to just become, um, you know, that first step towards, you know, something bigger and better. And diversity doesn't just mean that, you know, there's more inclusivity between, you know, people who are diverse and people who are not, but also it encourages individuals with different mindsets to gather and exchange different perspectives. It also allows people to, you know, come up with creative different ideas and it, it, you know, generally leads to improved problem solving and decision making. So, I mean, there's a win-win. So, you know, I'm I'm really looking forward to a future where there is more inclusivity in in this space. Thanks so much for that, Angela. Um, I I want to hand it down to um, Vis and Pavina, uh, who will talk a bit more about finance um, and the future. Great. Thanks very much, Sri and Angela. And I think it's a really good point because young people, the planet's going to affect them the most compared to our senior leaders. So like, it's so important they have a voice. Um, to wrap things up, I wanted to focus on your section, Pavina, which is all about finance, climate finance. What are we doing for in terms of carbon markets, things like that? Can you just highlight some of the key, other key takeaways from a finance point of view from COP? Great. Thanks. Thanks so much, Viz. Um, I, I think for, uh, following on from COP26, I think mobilizing climate finance for the global south and emerging markets has been a key focus at both COPs this year, particularly. I mean, for the first time, we're seeing real action in the form of a loss and damage fund. I think prior to this, there was a commitment made by developed markets um, to mobilize $100 billion of uh funding for climate adaptation. That was in 2009, and we still haven't seen that capital flow through to emerging markets. So it will be really interesting to follow on to um, to COP28 to see how this loss and fund, um, uh, loss and damage fund actually gets implemented and, and helps to move capital towards the um, developing world. One of the big challenges that we're seeing coming out of this year is due to inflationary environment and um, global, I mean, a risk of a global risk session coming on next year, I think cost of capital have increased significantly, particularly in the developing markets. What that means is that um, cost for developing projects, particularly even renewables, will be much more than it has historically been in emerging markets. And I think if you saw at COP27, um, uh, President Mia Motley from Barbados talks about this in her speech, which is a very important point, right, which is that the cost of borrowing is going up for emerging markets. So I think it'll be interesting to see this year and, ne- and next COP how um, developed markets can help mobilize some lower cost of capital right towards these markets um what's interesting also outside of cop we've seen a lot of momentum towards clean energy financing whether that be the inflation reduction act in the us that's mobilizing um 300 billion dollars towards um 
clean tech and renewables investment in the US, the repower EU in the European Union. And we're seeing very ambitious targets come out of Japan, China, and most recently Indonesia out of COP20, sorry, G20, as Sri mentioned earlier. But the challenge we're facing is still that hundreds and billions of dollars are still being invested in new coal assets, while China and India are forging ahead with new plans to roll out um, new coal power plant capacity, right? And if you look at the inner, the roadmap to achieving net zero by 2050 that the International Energy Agency has set out. What they talk about is that we need to phase out coal um, from developing from developed markets by 2030 and from the rest of the world by 2040. So the key fundamental question going forward will be, well, how can we make it make renewables and other forms of decarbonization decarbonizing tech cheap enough and cost competitive enough in the global south so that it becomes a no-brainer right it really comes down to cost and what we've seen as i mentioned earlier is that clean tech is not reaching the developing world fast enough only eight percent eight percent of total energy transition financing went to the developing markets last year and it's well below the peak of 20 percent in 2012 um yeah, so there's a lot that needs to be done, a lot um, a lot that needs to be done. And unfortunately, from this COP27, this, as you pointed out, there hasn't been a big focus on, on how, I think because of the presence of a very large um, fossil institution representing the fossil fuel industry, there has been... Uh, a lack of commitment, I would say, in terms of looking objectively at how we're going to transition the world and move the world from being reliant on fossil fuels towards a greener world. Um, having said that, I am optimistic, I think, about the opportunity for net, a net zero transition that uh, waits in front of us. I think I was looking at some of the statistics provided by McKinsey, and they talk about um the amount of investment that would be required for countries to reach net zero in the developing world is around $275 trillion by 2050. That's way more than the billion dollars that have been talked about at COP. Yeah, and, and that's so interesting, Pavina. And I just like just quickly on that topic about renewables and how important it is for developing nations. I wanted to also understand like this whole like the idea of carbon markets and carbon offsets i know like article six or something discussed do you think that's really important for the global south as well yeah that's a really interesting point uh viz thanks for bringing that up and for our listeners just to give you a background article six of the paris agreement is essentially was set up to help countries cooperate to reach climate targets and what it does is COP20 at COP27, they really took steps forward to put this into action. And what I find the most interesting out of Article 6 is Article 6.2 that allows one country to pay for emissions reductions in another country and count it towards their own goal. And this is something, this is a very interesting mechanism that, I mean, you may recall that right around COP27, John Kerry, the climate envoy from the U.S., had proposed um 
potentially using voluntary carbon markets to raise funding to help developing countries transition away from um uh from fossil fuels right and and we've seen the carbon markets really take off in the past couple of years i think in 2021 alone there were credits worth 2 billion dollars that were traded in the global carbon market now the challenge we're finding is that um the buying and selling of credits have been quite an opaque process prices globally aren't standardized and many projects actually haven't delivered what they have promised to and i think offsets in general there's been a lack of global framework that really can lead to um accuracy of uh uh, where the credits are coming from and where they're being deployed. So I think there's a bit of integrity, a lot of integrity that needs to be introduced to the process. Having said that, I think experts have mentioned that um, the carb voluntary carbon markets will play a role in, in the $2 trillion of financing that I think um, the COP27 or there's been a focus in trying to mobilize that funding for emerging markets. I think in general, voluntary carbon markets have been interesting. Recently, I was read about reading about Brazil and the president of Brazil um, floating the idea of creating a carbon market um, with Indonesia to uh, finance reforestation, particularly of the Amazon. And um, if you look at Brazil, Indonesia, and another country that I'm forgetting now, make up 50% of the um, global forests, right? And that's a natural carbon sink right there that that really help us uh, remove carbon emissions from the atmosphere. So I think there's been interesting ways that um, carbon markets have um, provided or been able to raise funding for new technologies, particularly in the European Union through the emissions trading program, where they've been able to raise credits to finance new new clean tech, such as EV charging infrastructure and such. So really excited to see how there will be a global framework created to help um, mobilize additional funding, right? And, and the other element that we haven't really discussed is we've, there's been a big focus on to, uh, on financing, but the other key focus is that we need to look at, well, how do we deploy and how do we mobilize these technologies and move that towards the global South and emerging markets, right? Which is what we here at Recalibrate and Greenfluence are really, that's been a big focus of why we launched this podcast series. Sure. Thanks so much, Pavina. And I think it's only fitting that you wrap things up. So, yep, go for it. Yeah. So um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, I think we've, as you can tell, we're very excited about the about COP27, looking forward to COP28 in um, the UAE next year. And between now and then, I think what we'd like, what we're aiming to do here at Recalibrate and Greenfluence is really profile interesting solutions that are being deployed at the front lines in the global south. I think for the first time, we're bringing 
bringing you narratives from people that are actually introducing technologies that can be a game changer to help these countries not only adapt to climate change, but also fight mitigations on a day-to-day basis. And in addition to that, we'll also be profiling investors um, that are looking for investment opportunity in the global south, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region where we all sit. Um, So really looking forward to uh, bringing great content to you over the next couple of months. So tune in and check check out our next episode um, in the next couple of weeks. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. All right. See you. Bye. I hope episode two on COP27 has been insightful for you. We'd like to thank our podcast editor, Tanisha Wong, for all her hard work in creating this episode. How did you find our second episode? If this is your first time listening, thank you for joining us and please feel welcome to listen to our previous episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you for listening in again. The Greenfluence and Recalibrate team would love to hear from you. If you'd like to get stay in touch and become a part of the Greenfluence and Recalibrate team, check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram and YouTube. We'd catch you in the next episode.